ask you to take your sheet at hand, follow along with me while I read. We believe that there's one and only one living and true God, an infinite intelligent spirit whose name is Jehovah, the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth, inexpressibly glorious in holiness and worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love, as in the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, equal in every divine perfection and executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. A little witnessing tool introduction into a gospel presentation I heard a man use one time it goes like this I've used it myself on different occasions I'm talking to a younger maybe high school or college age person you get in a friendly conversation they tell you that they are about to graduate from high school you can say well what then well I suppose I'll go on to college and graduate well, what then? Well, I suppose I'll get a job and work. Well, good. You're going to be industrious. Well, what then? Well, I guess I'm going to get married and have a family and raise that family and keep on working. And what then? Well, then I guess I'll retire and move on to the next phase of life. Well, what then after you retire? Well, I suppose I'll die. We don't have to suppose that we'll die, do we? We're going to die unless the Lord comes back sooner than we think, perhaps. But then we have all within us this innate sense that sometime, somewhere, it's all going to come to an end. And somehow, somewhere, there is this justice, this judgment we'll have to face and somewhere there is a God and he's going to judge me somehow everybody somewhat has a concept of that floating around in their mind and in their heart so it would behoove us to think about that ultimate out there that in place where we meet this God what is he like what are some of his attributes? Keep that in front of you, that little page, that one little paragraph. And we're going to look for a minute at Second London Confession that takes that one paragraph and expands it to three paragraphs. In their day, unlike our day, most people today want to have very blurred doctrinal distinctions about what they believe and how they practice what they believe because they feel like to get too distinct, too focused that we're going to offend someone and that somehow we're going to drive people away from Christ. We might say something to come between them and Christ and our personal beliefs. Those that wrote these doctrinal statements back in the 1600s, on the other hand, were eager to let people know what they believed because they believed and were convinced it was accurate in its descriptions of God and its word. So we want to expand a little bit on this smaller one that we have 
and be very distinct or more expressive of what the things are that we believe about God. First part says, The Lord our God is but one living and true God. Those might be the distinctive two words in that passage or that sentence. Living God, as opposed to all these other so-called deities, some of which even religious leaders, the founder of their religion, lies dead somewhere in a tomb. They want to make it very distinct that God is the living God, but also mentions something else. Singularity. There is only one God whose subsistence is in and of himself. Here we're starting to get in, drift a little bit in towards the doctrine of the Trinity. God is one. He's the living God, the only true God, but he has what they described as subsistences. But all those subsistences are consistent within the Trinity and consistent in himself. Now here's some words. You might see these words in that smaller paragraph also that describe this God that has everything within himself and self-existent. He is infinite in being and perfection. What does infinite mean to you? No boundaries, no limits, cannot be contained. Primarily cannot be contained within our small intellects and what we're able to figure out. If we could figure out everything there was to know about God and understand all his perfections, what would we be? We would be as smart as God and we'd be God. Because we could stand judge over him. So we know everything about you and we can comprehend everything. So we're the one that's infinite and not you. So he is infinite in his perfections. His essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. That's the doctrine of incomprehensibility. Again, I cannot comprehend how all the perfections of God work together and the persons of God and the Godhead work together. I can describe it to some extent. The scriptures describe it to some extent, but I cannot define it fully. He is the only one that can comprehend who he is. He is a most pure spirit. With, it goes on, the next phrase will tell us what does it mean to be a most pure spirit. He is without body. He does not have parts. And he does not have passions. And has immortality. Pure spirit. Doesn't have a body. Class of beings. Some people put also the angels and the demons into this class of beings. That there is a, it's a being, it's a spirit. A spirit. Not spiritual, but a spirit. Has no body parts. And importantly, I think, it mentions here, without passions. The doctrine of impassibility. Meaning that God, if he is immutable, as we say, he's unchangeable, then he cannot have these passions. What is a a definition of passions. One person said, it is defective human impulses. Some illustrations. Somewhere along the way, 
things. You might have the natural desire, impulse, to drink some water. You get thirsty. But what, how does that go too far? Become a passion. A desire to be drunk, perhaps. We have a natural desire to eat. We get hungry, don't we? There's nothing wrong with being hungry. That can turn into what? Gluttony and sin. But sometimes it's right, it's okay to be angry, somewhat disturbed at somebody else's performance. But what is wrong? To let that anger fall over into wrath and rage, get out of control. God, though He is jealous, it says, though that He is wrathful at times, He is never out of control, subject to defective impulses like we are. It goes on to say that He is also immortal. What's the difference between immortal and eternal? Eternal, there is no beginning in time and space. There is no ending in time and space. But you are not an eternal being, are you? You are a mortal being. It says he dwells in light which no man can approach. He is immutable. If he had passions could go from one stage of anger to another, he wouldn't be immutable, would he? He'd be changing. He is immense. He's eternal. Reinforces some of these concepts as you go along. Incomprehensible. Almighty. In every way, infinite. Most holy. There's a lot of, several mosts in here. The what do we call that, Brother Helwig? The, not the imperative? The highest degree? The, superlative. the superlative. Thank you, Brother Williams. Most holy. There's nobody holier than he is. Nobody more separate, no more pure than he is. Most wise. Nobody is as wise as God. He's most free. We like to think about the freedom of our will and our making of choices, doing things. But our wills are subject to His will, and He's free to contain or constrain us anytime He wants to. Most absolute, and He works all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and righteous will. Because He's all these most things, holy and good and right and just and all these things, because of that, He has the right to do all things or work all things, do all things, according to his counsel of his own unchanging will. And his will is righteous. It's good. See how these writers stack up these superlatives over and over and over again, reinforcing one after the other. Why does he do these things? Why is he immutable? Why does he always enforce his will over ours? Because it's for his own glory. You do not exist, I do not exist, none of us exist to glorify ourselves. God did not create us just to make us happy, make us useful, make us think we have some great purpose in the world. He created us to glorify Himself. But along those way, things where He is 
all these powerful attributes or has all these attributes something about his character he is also most loving most gracious most merciful most long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth how many things can you stack on top of another this keeps on going and going on. It's impossible, it's incomprehensible in his character to be able to describe God fully. And the interesting thing there in his most goodness is that his good, we think all the time about the goodness of God and how he provides for us places to live and families to put us in, ability to know him, opportunities to worship him, all those kinds of things. But his goodness expands even beyond his people all of mankind mankind in some ways always benefits from God's goodness not always or continually is there drought and suffering not only is it always continually plagues and viruses and things but there's goodness common grace to all mankind because God is most good I'm not most good Anybody ever figured that out when they look at me? That I'm not most good? My mercy, my goodness and goodwill towards people runs out sometimes. But God's doesn't. His truth never runs out. So the ways that, again, He's most loving is that He forgives iniquities, transgressions, and sin. It's up to me. Some people, I wouldn't forgive them. The, hard thing, the hardest thing we do in life, I think, is when people distinctly or really do come against us and harm us, sin against us or our family in some way, one of the hardest things to do is to forgive them. Very, very difficult. But God is forgiving. He's most forgiving. And He is the rewarder of them that seek Him. And nevertheless, at the same time, all these good things, all these merciful things, all these good things about God that he's describing here, the very end somewhat warns us, don't just look and see that God is good and he's gracious and wonderful and overflowing and all these attributes to the point we can't comprehend all of it. He'd hold in balance, they say, that he's also... Nevertheless, <clears throat> excuse me, most just, he's always going to do what's right. And terrible or frightening in his judgments because he hates all sin and will by no means, you've been through EE, what's the end of it? Will by no means what? Clear the guilty because he's all these things all this goodness and all this righteousness and he's unchanging he must be just while he's also good along the way those are just some things that expand that first paragraph in the definitions and the descriptions of his character another paragraph goes on in the second London confession that describes what we would say using the Latin term Aseity. Term aseity. A 
S-E-I-T-Y. The idea broadly speaking there is it's three Latin words combined together that means away from self plus. That seems complicated, doesn't it? I think the general idea is you can't add to God. He is self-sufficient. He does not. Sometimes it's humorous to hear people speaking and preaching and teaching and they say that God needs us so bad. He created us so he'd have somebody to have fellowship with. He's lonely. And it really fulfills God when he gets to have fun with us. That's denying the doctrine of aseity or self-sufficiency. They describe it this way. God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient. In every aspect. He does not need, has a need of any creature which he's made. He's made us for a purpose, but his self-interest does not evolve around me. Another question involved in some of these catechisms is, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy doing that. But God, He is, as this doctrine tells us, He is the first and the chiefest being. We need Him, but He doesn't need us. He's self-sufficient. He didn't get any glory from us. We can ascribe glory to Him. We can praise Him. But everything I say about God, all His attributes, every song or hymn that I sing about Him, that I try to lift Him up, does that add any glory to God? He has all the glory already. Immense, incomprehensible, infinitely glorious he does not need me and doesn't get glory from me and my weak efforts and impure motives and thoughts. We only, he only manifests his glory in, by, unto, and upon us. He causes us to have some worth. We reflect some of his glory and our only real worth is when we reflect his glory back towards him and towards the created order around us. He alone is the only fountain of all being of whom, through whom, and to whom all things exist he's the ultimate source and this ultimate source says he has most sovereign dominion over all creatures again the superlative not just sovereign but most sovereign and he can do by them, for them or upon them whatsoever himself pleases. In other words, we belong to God. He created us. He is the ruler over us. We are his subject. He's not subject to our whims and desires. We're subject to him ultimately. And he can do anything that he wants to with us. That's where man often does. We want to think about God's justice or his injustice. We need to think first about his creation and ownership of us. And he does not owe, owe us one single thing. His knowledge about us is infinite. 
His eyes, his sight is open to all things. And his knowledge is infinite. There's not a single thing that he does not know and does not remember about you and about me. My wife was talking to me this morning while I was getting ready to leave and she asked me about something that I said three weeks ago. <laughs> she remembered it exactly. I didn't have a clue. I wasn't even close to the ballpark on that issue. But God, I forgot. God does not forget. He's infinite, but He's also infallible. He never fails to uphold His own character and His own attributes. He's independent of the creature. So to Him, nothing is contingent or uncertain. One of the most amazing things to me is the people who can take from Romans mention foreknowledge and turn it God into a genie in a bottle to a being or spirit that you are a reader of the globe the magic bubble and God is out here someplace and he has to look ahead of time and he looks and sees what Philip Waddell is going to do. He doesn't know, so I have to see what Waddell is going to do. Then I adjust my plan accordingly for what ha want to ha happen in Waddell's life. If he isn't in control of everything and doesn't know it because he's decreed it, then he's not in charge of anything. He's always just continually... And again, we try to think of God, we think of Him, perceive Him as being like us. Because that's kind of our point of reference, our human nature. What do I have to do every day? I may have a plan or two out there, a goal or two out there that I want to accomplish during the day, but something can always happen in between. I don't even know if I will take the next breath and walk off this stage. I don't know that I'll even ever eat another meal. I don't know that I'll ever see another sunset. And then we think or perceive somehow God is always reacting to us. That's a false perception of God. Nothing with Him is contingent on what you do or I do. There's nothing uncertain with Him. He is most holy in all His counsels and these things He's going to bring to pass. Always holy in all His works and all His commands is due to Him from angels and men. Whatever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the Creator. And whatever is further pleased to require of Him. I have to do, align my life, my thoughts, my motives, according to what God's Word says. Not according to what I think ought to please me or what I think ought to be done. It has to line up with God and His commands and He can demand of me anything that He wants. We might think, well, one of God's commands is that we observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The Lord's day. Well, I feel like that I could turn it into, I'm going to be 
magnanimous towards God, but I'm going to turn it into, well, it's the Lord's morning. The afternoon and evening, I can do whatever I want to do in any way that I want to do. I can think about anything I want to think about. I can conduct my business any way I want to. I can go into any activity I want to. It's the Lord's morning. But God says what? One whole day in seven that we turn it over to Him to do what pleases Him. God's will is, imper is the imperative and what He wants us to do, He can ask us, He can command us anything that He wants and override all of our emotions and all our desires. goes on to one more paragraph that leads into maybe the most provocative, most compelling doctrine in the Scriptures. One time in evangelism class, I had a student ask me to explain to him the contrast between God's will and man's will. God's will and salvation and man's will and choosing, he would say. So I gave a little answer, a little pat answer most people have. And he said, well, I need no more. That's not enough. Kept demanding more and more answers. And I finally ran out of examples and illustrations, expansion of that. He asked another question about it. Wasn't good enough for him. He wasn't being smarty or prideful. He just wasn't good enough. I understood that. But the way I closed the argument, he's, I told him, I will explain that to you when you can explain to me the doctrine of the Trinity. That closed the argument right there. That's how deep this doctrine is. But let me show you how this doctrine statement expands on what we had earlier. You notice in the earlier one in your hand, that in the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost equal in every divine perfection and executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. Now that's a good, concise statement. It's one of the best statements in that whole doctrinal statement. But here's how you might go about teaching and refining or expanding on that. In this divine and infinite being, God, there are three subsistences, again, uses that word. The Father, the Word or the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's one substance. Some people say essence. That, you, that word is used a little bit later on. And what's substance, power, and eternity? Each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. That's, that's just as simple as it can be in it. But it's as condensed as you can make it, I believe. The Father is of none. Goes and describes each one of these persons of the Trinity. The Father is of none. Neither is begotten. Nor proceeding from anyone. The Son is eternally begotten of God. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. It's even better. And they're all infinite, all without beginning. Therefore, but one God, 
who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished. We don't divide him, but we distinguish the several relative properties and personal relations, which the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of our communion with God and our dependence upon Him. I think the last sentence is the most important. The doctrine of our Trinity, of the Trinity, is the foundation of our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon Him. And I'll expand on that just a little bit for the closing statement. Oftentimes we use different, or try to use, different analogies have been composed about God. Does anybody have, anybody have a personal favorite analogy or illustration they try to use about God? That was a silly thing to ask. Nobody's going to stand up and volunteer one. Well, let me volunteer one that you've heard lots of times. God is, they'll say, I'm not saying this, I'm not profaning God. I'm just giving an illustration of what people say. They use the illustration of water and steam and ice. It's a little bit, maybe a little helpful somewhere, just a little bit of an analogy, but not a good illustration. Another common one out there that's used is they'll say the idea of light and heat and something else. I can't remember. What's, what would go along with light and heat? Well, hell was trying to say it. He can't quite get it out. Light and heat. There's another one that goes with it. The problem with those is that there are no natural analogies or illustrations of God in nature. Because He is wholly different. He is wholly above as the creator and controller of nature. So there's nothing exactly like Him. One of the authors offered an analogy that brings a little bit of God's Christ into the situation it speaks of an analogy of the Trinity God the Father God the Son, God the Holy Spirit to say that God, a human being can be a father can be a son, can be a brother all at the same time that's the closest you're going to ever get and all these illustrations, all these analogies somewhere at some point collapse they cannot do justice to the Trinity let me think of another one here for you for just a minute. Fire, light, and heat is what I was trying to remember a moment ago. Down to that last topic though. Why is it so important? Older theologians compose a statement somewhat like this to try to encapsulate the importance of to us particularly of God in three persons. That God in eternity past gave an inheritance, gave a people to the Son. And the Son purchased, redeemed, died for those people. And the Holy Spirit applies that redemption to us. Three in one cannot be divided but distinct in some ways now that's a very very weak overview of the doctrine of God small statement in our statement most people have and then expand a little bit but then let's go back again and look 
at these four questions. So we went from the paragraph, expanded on the paragraph, now we're going to draw it back down again with something we can leave with today on our minds, hopefully to think about during the day. What would God want us to think about today? Who is the first and chiefest being? The answer is? God is the first What is God? Spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in His being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, living and true God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three are what? One God. Same in essence, equal in power and glory. Let's see if we can remember this today, think about this today. That God gave us to His Son. The Son died to redeem us. And the Holy Spirit applied that salvation to us.